Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? <laughs> Who doesn't? So if so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? Every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom, you just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my webpage. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, and we're here live. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, Kinetic Hi-Fi, The Fix of Them, and Apple, YouTube, Facebook, Stritcher, Spreaker, iTunes, all the heck with it. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say next. Go to the name of the show, mm-hmm. put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my courageous co-host, Curtis C.S. Courageous. Oh, good afternoon, <laughs> courageous Curtis. Hey, we got a new nickname for you. <laughs> you like that? Wow. <laughs> Oh, it sounds great. Oh, man. You know, it's it's a beautiful oh. day when when you can wake up and and find out that like seventy five percent of the Democrats want Nancy Pelosi to go. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Oh man, huge amen to that one. And a lot of these, they're saying that they will not vote for Nancy Pelosi. Happen to be socialists themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so the Democrats are eating the young. <laughs> I can't can't wait till we get rid of some of our establishment types and leadership. 
That oh, one, that one's the, uh, the topping on the cake. Oh, yeah. That's the truth. That's the truth. Matter of fact, I just got in contact with my friend Joe Dugan, who runs the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, and it looks like they may be skipping this year because of the midterm elections. They want to take all their energies and focus on the midterm elections here in the state of South Carolina, and that's very important. Uh, we've got to get rid of James Clyburn. We've got a great candidate out there. Unfortunately, he's got you know family business down in Texas he's got to take care of before he gets back on the campaign trail, but we're going to have to get people all across the whole state to throw their weight behind his election, throw some money in there and get him up on the road. Uh, we got to get rid of Clyburn. Anyway, we got two great guests, uh, no, three great guests joining us today. We have um, co-authors, um, Bodie Taney and uh, land historian expert, Pastor Ray Bentley, Holy Land, I should say, not land, Holy Land expert, Ray, uh, Pastor Ray Bentley will join us for the first half. They've got a great uh, book out part one of the Elijah Chronicles on the mountain of the Lord. And it's, it, I read the book and oh man, I can't wait for the sequels to come out. Uh, we also right. have in the second half of the show, uh, also a radio host, but he's also an author of a new book out unknown America myths and little known oddities about the greatest nation on earth. His name is Michael Hart. And we're going to have a lot of fun with him with everything that's going on. Ooh, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. We're going to have so much fun. <laughs> Um, That said, on a more serious note, um, people know that each and every show is started out with a dedication to a fallen hero. However, today's dedication goes to the members that the American military members that participated in Operation Tiger, also known as Exercise Tiger, in April of 1944 during World War II, who died on the Slapton Sands in the worst U.S. military training disaster in history. And this is from Warfare History Network, written by Chris McMacken. And it's been abbreviated for time. And it reads, Operation Bolero, the marshalling of Allied forces for the planned 1944 invasion of Normandy was in full swing by late 1943, and much of England had been turned into a great armed camp. While British, Canadian, and free French armies trained in the east, south, and north, American armored infantry and airborne divisions were concentrated in the Midlands, the southwest, and southern Wales. Across the meadows and farmlands of Dorset, Wiltshire, and Devon, Thousands of young GIs made their new homes in Nesson huts and tents, griped about warm beer and the weather, and made friends with local folk in tea shops and inns during off hours. They learned battlefield tactics on wide-scale maneuvers and sweated through grueling route marches with long columns of tanks, jeeps, trucks, and half-tracks, rumbled through ancient villages, and clogged the narrow winding lanes. Stores of equipment, vehicles, and fuel were hidden in the woodlands and spread across fields. Massive preparations were underway for the long-awaited liberation of Western Europe. The American soldiers' training was made as realistic as possible, with an emphasis on amphibious tactics, because they and their allied comrades would be landing in northern France from the English Channel, stubbornly opposed by seasoned German defenders. While many of the other Allied troops had little or no combat experience, 
the vast majority of Americans had seen no action at all. Out of the 15,000 men in the U.S. 29th Infantry Blue and Gray Division, newly arrived and destined to land in Omaha Beach, only five had been under fire. Late in 1943, the British War Cabinet approved the building of two 25-square-mile assault training centers for the U.S. troops in Devon on one of the scenic northern coasts between Appledore and Willacombe and others between the ports of Brixham and Salicum in the south southern coast. The central stretch of the latter coastline slapped in sands in Start Bay was earmarked for the U.S. Infantry Ivy Division, the 4th Infantry, because it was strikingly similar to Utah Beach, the division's assigned invasion beach in Operation Overlord. From the summer of 1943 onward, southwestern England became an American training area. The U.S. Navy took over several bases in the Royal Navy's Plymouth Command, and the Stars and Stripes were hosted over six new landing craft maintenance and repair centers along the southwestern coast. The opening phase of Exercise Tiger was watched briefly on April 27, 1944, by General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of the Allied Armies. General Bernard L. Montgomery, Allied Ground Forces Leader, and Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsey, the overall D-Day Naval Commander. But things started to go awry from the beginning. On that morning, Rear Admiral Don P. Moon, the U.S. Naval Commander of the Exercise, postponed each hour for 60 minutes and some units of the 4th Infantry Division did not receive the message. Commander Bernard Skakel was the U.S. officer responded for the LSTs, the landing craft, directing the flotilla from the bridge of LST-515. He had no way of knowing on April 27th that he was to be protected only by the destroyer HMS Saladin and the underarmed corvette HMS Azalea. The Saladin was 30 miles away and did not catch up with the LSTs until after 3 a.m. During the night of April 27th through the 28th, the heavily laden LSTs, inadequately protected and vulnerable, and two platoons of Admiral Moon's 337 vessel Force U churned slowly through Lyme Bay off Dorset Resort of Lyme Regis, heading for Slapton Sands about 40 miles westward. Then shortly before 2 a.m., while the flotilla was 15 miles off Dorset Peninsula of Portland Bill, all hell suddenly broke loose when nine diesel-powered German e-boats from Cherbourg appeared on the scene. They were like foxes let loose in a chicken coop, painted black and almost invisible. The raiders screamed across the dark water among the landing ships, and fired streams of green tracer shells that spread panic and chaos. One of the enemy boats fired two torpedoes, and a sheet of flame leaped from LST-507. Fatally damaged, she started sinking as some of the 447 soldiers and sailors on board began throwing themselves into the sea. Men yelled, we're going to die. Lieutenant James Murdoch, who survived the death of LST-507, later reported. All of the Army vehicles naturally were loaded with gasoline, and it was the gasoline that caught fire first. 
as the gasoline spread on the deck and poured into the fuel oil, which was seeping out of the side of the ship. It caused fire on the water around the ship. From Lieutenant Eugene Exton, the greatest horror was the screams of the soldiers trapped in the high-roaring furnace fire where trucks were exploding on the LST's deck tank. Commander Skakel saw the LST-507 Inferno, but he had no idea what had happened because an earlier order for radio silence, worst, was yet to come. Fifteen minutes later, two e-boats closed in on another ship. Torpedoes slammed into the side of LST-531, and she started listing to the starboard, rocked by explosions. Her demise was even swifter than that of LST-507. Emmanuel Rubin, a crewman aboard 469, saw a gigantic orange ball explosion like something from the movies, a flame like it had come from hell with little black specks around the edges, which we knew were jeeps or boats, stanchions or men. Injured men screamed for help as they were thrown into pools of burning oil on the channel surface. Floundering helplessly in the black water and trying to calm panic-stricken men, Navy corpsmen Arthur Victor watched ammunition explode from LST's 531's bow like a 4th of July celebration and bodies flung in all directions like ragdolls. By now, confusion swept through the ambushed LST flotilla. Tiger, Exercise Tiger, a dress rehearsal for the Normandy invasion, only a month and a half away, had turned into a nightmare of blind firing, panic, and sudden death. One LST crewman said that the e-boats that had the landing ships trapped and hemmed in like a bunch of wolves circling a wounded dog. Confused soldiers shot at their own boats, believed that they were firing at the Germans. Other GIs, unaware that they had been issued with live ammunition, thought that the explosions and flames around them were part of the exercise. Men drowned, and Sherman tanks and trucks sank. Around 2.30 a.m., Pedo at LST-289. Another explosion lit up the channel waters, and the LST's stern was severely damaged, but her crew managed to keep her afloat. A Royal Navy task group led by the destroyer HMS Onslow raced to the area, but the e-boats eluded it. By 3.30 a.m., Commander Skakel decided not to risk losing any more of his men, so he sent the remaining six LSTs back to port. Before doing so, one of his ship's landing craft moved through the wreckage and picked up 15, I'm sorry, 45 survivors. One door and broke, hundreds of soldiers were found floating upside down in the cold channel waters. Improperly instructed, they had incorrectly placed the life vest around their waist instead of under their arms. The weight of their packs and the equipment had forced their heads down into the water, and they drowned. Burns, shock, and hypothermia also took a toll. For those untried young American soldiers and seamen, a fire had come unexpectedly in six weeks early. The initial death toll in the most costly wartime training disaster in the U.S. military history was 441 Army, 198 Naval personnel, and another 110 soldiers were subsequently determined as killed or missing. The heaviest casualties occurred among the quartermaster 
and valuable engineering companies. One of the largest losses of American lives in a single incident since the Pearl Harbor attack, it came to be known as the Night of the Bloody Tiger. Between April 27th and 28th, approximately 800 to 1,000 men actually are believed to have been lost, although the official toll for April 28th is 749. Today's show is dedicated to the brave men that served during Operation Tiger and lost their lives. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military, be it from the birth of our nation through today and into our future. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one. Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, all the heck with it. Just iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most sister, Brady Chick Annie, along with my courageous co-host. That's the new one, Courageous Curtis. <laughs> uh, welcome aboard. Uh, and we've got uh, two excellent people with us today. I, I'm, yes. I know I'm going to... Each time I'm going to try it, I'm going to say your name wrong, but I'm going to try it again. Uh, Bodhi Tanay, is that correct? Did I say it correct? No, but that's okay. I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Bodhi Taney, and the last name is spelled T-H-O-E-N-E. And uh, even after Soini. 30 years of, yeah, no, Taney. 
<laughs> Taney, okay. Spody Taney. Yeah, you have okay. to have you. There you go. No, no, there we well, go. That was, and we also was, have. Uh, oh, sorry. I was going to say we also we also have with us your co-author in your latest book, Pastor Ray Bentley. I want to welcome both of you to the uh, the show. And I loved your book, uh, which is I want to make sure I get the title correct. I don't want to mess that up. On the Mountain of the Lord, uh, Part One of the yeah. Elijah Chronicles. And man, I, I can't wait for the additional books to come out. It is it's such a wonderful book to read, and it's a transformational book, basically. What made the two of you get together? Well, I'll, I'll let Ray tell that story. Okay. Well, you know, I had, uh, you know, I, I grew up and and heard about, you know, I got saved through Billy Graham, and I heard about the Lord maybe could be coming back in our generation, all this stuff, and the paper when I was about 10 years old with uh, Israel. And so, you know, I, I just fell in love with that. And God called me to be a pastor. And I ended up writing a book four years ago called The Holy Land Key. And it's kind of my personal journey, especially since about the year 2000 in Israel and meeting uh, even the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, some words that a friend of mine, Robert, gave to Netanyahu that came to pass learning about, you know, some of the believers and the local Jewish pastors, even some of the local Arab believers. And so anyway, I wrote this book, I was getting ready to write a new one. And my son-in-law says, oh, Ray, that's really good. You know, people, you know, like prophecy and stuff. He goes, but my generation, I don't think they're going to read it. I was really hurt. I was like, what do you mean, Sean? I got all this cool stuff I want to share with people. I want to do the Holy Land Key too. And he goes, oh, it's good. He goes, I'll read it. But my generation, the millennials, look, they don't know all the stuff your generation grew up with. And, uh, you know, basically they look at Israel and they go, man, Israel's like a Goliath. They got nuclear weapons, this big, mighty, powerful army, and the Palestinians are throwing rocks and sticks. It just doesn't seem fair. And I go, yeah, but that's not the, that's on the surface. There's a whole, he goes, I know, but they're not going to read it. He goes, why don't you think about writing a story? Bring them on a journey. Um, so anyway, providentially, God, you know, as he does, has, there was a meeting that myself and Robert, my very prophetic friend, were called up to L.A. through a mutual friend, and I met Bodhi and Bautini, and I was like, oh, my gosh, Bodhi Tini is one of my heroes. She's like a rock star. I've read her books about Israel, you know, and the, the historical novels, the Jewish perspective. Wow. So I just thought that was cool. And then my wife said, hey, you know, have you ever thought about writing a fiction book and maybe even, you know, with Bodhi? And I was like, no, I was still determined. I'm going to write a prophecy book, Holy Lane Key 2. But I was studying one night Saturday, getting ready to uh, do a Saturday night message, and I just felt the spirit come on me. And I heard a still, small voice say, why don't you call Bodhi and Brock and ask them if they would prayerfully consider writing a news story with you about what's currently happening in the Middle East, what's going on in Israel right now, but it's a story to kind of help bring especially the new generation along. So I told my wife, and she goes, oh, my gosh, we better pray. And so we prayed, and I called Bodhi, and, you know, she had never, to my knowledge, done this before, never needed to, never been led to write with anybody else. So I presented it to her and Brock, and she didn't say no. She goes, well, we'll pray about it. And so I said, okay, Vicki, let's pray. And so anyway, they prayed, they came back, and both uh, Bodie and Brock, you know, he's the researcher, she's a great storyteller. They said, you know what? The Lord has told us, let's go on this journey. 
So that was a little over a year ago, and now finally, you know, this story has come out, and man, I am I am so excited. And my son-in-law is sharing it with all of his friends and all the millennials, and they're loving it too. So it's just been an incredible journey. Man. Wow, Bodie, try to top that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't, except uh, you know, I, we have just uh, spent our lives writing about um, Israel and the. Uh, you know, doing it through fiction. I worked for uh, for John Wayne um, in my early years as a writer, and he said you can tell people what they need to hear and teach them what what they need to to learn if you put it in a good story. And that is the you know that's kind of the principle of uh, of telling parables, and that's what Jesus did. So, you know, uh, this. Ray is such an amazing um, expert on prophecy, and I'm talking about what's happening right now today in Israel, what you look at in the news. uh, You know, all of this stuff is uh, prophetic fulfillment. And so we had so appreciated his teaching. And um, what we did is is, uh, um, put fictional characters who are actually composites of real people and we gave it a plot line, and it reads like a movie. And um, by the time somebody finishes, they're going to know exactly what's going on in the world today, in Israel today. They're going to understand the significance of it, and they will have, um, you know, climbed into a, a uh, uh, the time machine of a novel and stepped mm-hmm. out into the the most incredible events in all of history and they're going to have a really, really deep understanding. So, you know, it, it's just a, it is a heaven-forged uh, friendship and a heaven-forged uh, relationship for Brock and I to know uh, Ray and his wife, Vicki, and, and uh, be working with Ray right now. Very, very exciting. Well, Bodie, because my audience doesn't know you, and honestly, I did not know about your book until your agent had contacted me and said, hey, I think this would be a good guess. I had no idea this existed out there, honestly, and I am so glad it was brought to my attention. But you and your husband, Brock, are also exceptional individuals. You have written 70 books, over 70 books. That is absolutely amazing, and you're so young. I mean, I haven't started my first one. Holy cow. What drives you? Well, well, you know, you know, Anne, this is this is what uh, this is what I've done from the time I was very young. I worked in a uh, uh, my degrees are in um, political science and journalism, and I I wrote on a daily newspaper um, before I did anything else. And when you write in a uh, um, on a daily, uh, you learn the discipline of writing. And so I would say probably that the accumulation of uh, you know of work. Uh, for somebody who is a legitimate uh, journalist was the equivalent of say a novel and a half. So I just, I learned very early on to be very, very disciplined. And Brock is an amazing historian and um, mm-hmm. our books, uh, Zion Chronicles and Zion Covenant, um, you know, they, they are set in their historical novels and, uh, they're set in, uh, you know, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in 1948. Very exciting time, and something that John Wayne said to me is a uh, is the Jewish Alamo. So, um, you know, Zion Chronicles and Zion Covenant deal with that period of time 70 years ago, exactly 70 years ago, 
and on the mountain of the Lord is talking about right now, what is happening right now. And boy, you you need to know this. I mean, people need to know these uh, these amazing details of how significant uh, the prophecies are about Israel right now and uh, America's connection to that too. So, yeah, we're we've been around a while, and this has been the focus of our lives. Well, you know, I want to get into the actual book itself because uh, I found it very, very fascinating. And I, I used to be able to read thrillers all the time, but once I started getting into the political side of things, I always was a political animal. I mean, my first editorial mm. straight out of high school back in 1976 was a major uh, editorial in a New York newspaper. And they don't, you don't get put below the fold unless you've got something real to say. And I was only 18. <laughs> but, you know, life comes yeah. on and it happens to all of us. We get involved in other things, and you get distracted. Instead of keeping up with the politics that are going on there, you pick up a different book. You start to read. For me, it was mysteries or thrillers or action adventures, things like that. But then when I started paying more attention and saying, hey, wait a minute, I've been kind of like asleep these last few years, but things are going on here, which has led now my eighth anniversary doing this radio show and my activism within the Tea Party as a leader, um, you know, People are becoming more astute and more alert, which is why I think a book like yours would be an excellent tool to educate people to what the truth is out there. Um, And your book starts off with the character, Dr. Jack Garrison. Uh, Tell us about him and and how you start the book off with him. Well, he is a guy who has lost his faith. And uh, he he was at one time, you know, somebody who who believed, but, but life got hard. And he just, you know, he just gave it up. And also, he was very, very anti um, anti Israel. You would you would probably categorize him as, um, uh, you know, somebody who would say at the time never Trump, and uh, somebody who was a, a real liberal. And um, he is assigned to go on a fact finding mission to Israel. And once he gets there, he begins to see. Uh, visions of of what was, what is, and what will be, and um, it, it is an amazing thing. You go on his spiritual journey and and his coming spiritually coming home to the knowledge that in the Bible are all of the answers in this troubled world in this exact troubled moment. Um, he he begins to to connect the dots, and that's you know that is the that's that's the point of this of this uh, story is you you go on Jack's journey with him, and no matter where your faith is, no matter what you believe now, you begin to see that the Bible actually is true, and it is the most amazing prophetic document that has ever existed in in all of history, and uh, so. Yeah, so it's um, it, it was a really exciting journey uh, for Brock and I. Uh, you know, even after seventy novels to to and thirty five million sold, we we you know we sat back and we said, wow, to be able to work with Ray Bentley, who knows these things, who knows Netanyahu, who knows the people who are, you know, in the Knesset. I mean, this is a this is an exciting uh, was an exciting project for us and n- not like anything we have ever done before because it's right now you pick it up and it's like reading the headlines in today's newspaper well you know you use a lot of uh things that have gone on in the past year in your book 
which when you interwove it, I was going, I remember that in the news. I'm, I'm thinking back, oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, but people don't realize there are a, a lot of organizations out there with ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and that are working behind the scenes to actually destroy yeah. Israel. And your main character, Jack, happens to work for one of these. And here he's thinking that, oh, they really mean to have peace in the Middle East. But once he realized what his actual mission was and it was to destroy Israel, that's when he, it's a pivotal point for him, I think. Yeah, yeah. This, you know, this um, poison toward Israel, I mean, I, you know, like I said, you know, our, our, our books, um, Zion Covenant and Zion Chronicles, deal with uh, pre-World War II, World War II, and then, and then into the reestablishment of the state of Israel. And so knowing that history as well as we do, we know that what is happening right now and what Jack experienced is nothing new. I mean, Annie, it's nothing new. This is the stuff that, um, you know, Hitler was allied with the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the Muslim Grand Mufti of of Jerusalem in the 1930s. And he is, um, he's the originator of the terrorists that we are seeing right now. That connection, you can look it up, uh, you know, on the Internet. Uh, Hajamin el-Husseini, you recognize the name. Husseini, yes, the yes, very famous name. Yeah, okay. And you can yes. look him up yeah. and Hitler, and you'll see videos of them together and uh, and with the Muslim troops who, who planned on annihilating all the Jews uh, eliminating any um, uh, democratic control, meaning uh, Great Britain, uh, in the Middle East. I mean, this was and still is unchanged. The goal is to finish what Hitler began, and that is to drive every single Jew into the sea. And, um, you know, we're, we're just telling it like it is. And, um, and the, the connections back to the 1930s, the 1940s, 1948, and now it, it's, it's a continuum. It's a connect the dots and see that the political agenda of the Nazis, of Adolf Hitler, has not changed. It still exists. It is alive and well. It is firing rockets from Gaza into Israel, even as we speak, those things are happening. And the twisting of the media, I mean, the twisting of the media is just unbelievable, the way they have, uh, you know, changed everything. And that, again, is a prophetic um, fulfillment. It's also a, um, a propaganda tool that was used, um, you know, during the time of the rise of the Nazis. So, you know, we're seeing the same pattern, the same thing, and it is escalating. The good news mm-hmm. is... Uh, it, this this will have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, know I always Bodie and Ray. Revelation. Let me just finish the one thought here, Curtis, and I'll let you go. Uh, okay. <laughs> what I say, always say, Pastor, is is that Revelations always says in the end we win in the end. So no matter how they try to fight <laughs> the story, we will win in the end. Just we have to do what we need Amen. to do. I'm sorry, but a <laughs> huge Go ahead, Curtis. Now. Yeah, I just want to say how sad it was that there's such hatred for the Jews and the West by Muslims um, and those countries over there in the Middle East. Um, from what I, I've studied, 
Arabs and Jews used to get along very well before Muhammad mm-hmm. came along on the scene mm-hmm. yeah. to change all that. But um, yeah. to to reiterate something you said earlier, because um, I write books and and my mother used to read me Bible stories when I was young, and that that really captivated my attention. You know, versus a straight out you know um, textbook type study um, of the Bible. So when I write books that are historic, historical in nature, I put them in a story format because I find that people enjoy a story, just like you said, um, more so than if it was like a classroom textbook. So I just want to make that that note. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, that yep. that is that's the truth, and and uh, that's the purpose of on the mountain of the Lord. You see all the amazing events that have happened uh, in and around Israel on mountaintops. And, um, and uh, that, that's something that, that uh, Pastor Ray brought to, uh, to Brock and I and taught us as we were, uh, as we were working as, and as we were learning. So it's a, it's a phenomenal connection, uh, an amazing prophetic connection. And, um, something that we're just, you know, we're thrilled to be part of this and hoping that people are going to read this and go, wow, <laughs> you know, this is, this is today and this is what this means. You know, there's so many things I was thinking of when I was reading the book, you know, flashing back to different things. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that struck me odd is that um, I, growing up, you know, I heard – the news and everyone else is like, oh, Israel this, Israel that. And I'm talking about in the 60s. Uh, but I had been listening to something, and I started to ask my grandfather about it. And he goes, and he sat me down on the knee, and he started to teach me about Israel. And my grandma, grandfather and grandmother were straight off the boat from Italy. And I'm thinking, you know, wow. here the Catholic Church used to preach. And I'm sure you're aware of this, Pastor, for the longest time the Catholic Church taught that the Jews were responsible for the death of Christ which is another reason why I'm no longer Roman Catholic. Um, I left my faith. No, actually, my faith left me. I shouldn't say I lost my faith. No, my faith was abandoned me, not me abandoning my faith with the Catholic Church. Uh, And he explained, and I said, well, the church and the pope keep on telling us, because that's not right. But I thought the pope was invaluable, because it's still not right. And he started to teach me. And then um, when my grandfather passed away, my mother did something very amazing, and ever since then, every once in a while, when someone dear to, and near to me uh, passes away, I do the same thing. She had an olive uh, tree planted in Israel on the side of a mountain, and when a dear friend of mine had passed away, I did the same thing for her. Uh, actually, it was her mother passed away. I did the same thing for her mother, but her mother was a Holocaust survivor. Wow. Who wow. did return yeah. to Israel for a visit, mm-hmm. and she had passed away a number of years ago. And when you write about the planting, it struck me. And matter of fact, mm-hmm. right now I got goosebumps. Mm-hmm. You know, just thinking about that. Mm-hmm. What is the significance and importance of planting in Israel? All right, that's that's absolutely something that we learned from Ray. So go well, for it, Ray. Ray. Go get it. Yeah, priest okay. brother. Well, thank you, thank you, buddy. You know. I want to just say that, uh, we, you know, the church history of the last 2,000 years in regard to Israel and the Jews is, is not good Catholic or Protestant. Uh, you know, we have a long – we're all guilty. You know, we've all been guilty of anti-Semitism or, or 
the church has misunderstood, I think, a lot of those things. And now God's recovering it all over the place. And there are people who's having their eyes open. What, here's, when I went to Israel and I went to this city called Ariel, the mayor there took me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. And he goes, <laughs> Ray, you know, he goes, you are a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And I'm looking around like, what are you talking about? He goes, right here. And he read to me. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 6, and he talked about how the watchman will come plant vines, vineyards, and trees on the mountains of Judea and Samaria, and then they will say, now let us go to the mountain of the Lord and worship him. He goes, man, we've been waiting for you guys for 2,000 years, and here you are. I said, oh my gosh. He said, actually, the Hebrew word for watchman is, the root word in Hebrew is notzrim. And he said, no, that's what we Jews call the, the believers in Jesus. He was a Nazarene. That's no, Nazarene. So by you guys being here, planting trees, planting vineyards, and literally this nation that was dead and vacant and barren that is now blossoming, they have planted something like 250 million trees in Israel. And they've actually shown it's changed the, you know, the topography, it's changed the the atmosphere, the rainfall, it snows in Jerusalem about every three to five years. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And then that it's prophetic. Um, it's, just, it's just unbelievable what, what God is doing. And so I am so excited for people to see this is happening right here, right now in Israel. And when our president moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on the 70th anniversary of Israel, like Bodhi was just saying, I cannot tell you the, the significance, how big that is, not only on earth, but in heaven. It has shifted the paradigm into the an acceleration unlike anything we've ever seen. So that's kind of the, the desire for the book that people read it on, you know, on the mountain of the Lord. They can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And I want to say, thank God, that it debuted at number one on the day that it came out uh, on Amazon in its category for Christian inspiration. So, man, people are reading it and loving it. Man, I mean, I'm having so much fun with this conversation. I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, oh, my God. And I've got pages and pages of notes from, from the book. You have to send me an autographed copy, honestly. This book, I have okay, to have because okay, okay. people are looking at, on the video, there's a bookcase behind me, and all of the authors I've had on the show, if it's not an electronic copy, I have their book on the shelf. So you got to give me an autographed copy. <laughs> Please. You have got um, You've got And of course, I can't leave my co-host out. <laughs> Poor Curtis. <laughs> now he's got a catching up to do because Curtis <laughs> is up to book number 24. So Curtis, you got a long way yeah. to go. <laughs> I, <do. laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to tackle that. <laughs> But there's questions coming up in the in the ch- chat room. Uh, one of them has to deal with the media, which is anti-Semitic, anti-American, and you you address this in the book also, because after there was an attack in London, in which uh, if people read the book will recognize the scene automatically from the news headlines. Uh, but this is this is another thing that we are battling: the battle of truth versus anti-American, anti-media, and you right. address this in the book. Yeah. Go ahead, Bodie. Yeah, well, I uh, it it is it's just pervasive in our society right now, and 
the the um, scary thing about it is, and it really is, is the media can shape public opinion. And what we have is a concerted, planned effort to twist the truth. It's, you know, it's like, um, golly, you know, you have 180 rockets that go over the border from Gaza and are hitting uh, Israel. And Israel responds to that. Now, what does the media do? The media twists it as if Israel is the aggressor rather than uh, Hamas. Um, you know, you have um, within, within the, the context of the U.N., there's no condemnation, for instance, of a, of a country like uh, North Korea uh, that, that imprisons and, and murders Christians or, you know, uh, any of the, the, the Middle East states that arrest Christian pastors or, um, you know, the, uh, the systematic destruction and attack of, Christ, of ancient Christian communities. And yet Israel is always painted as being, you know, this is the one that the, the UN is, is going to censor. This is the one that the UN is going to condemn. Now, why is that? I mean, it has to be that, that this particular group of people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, that what God said in uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is really true. He said, to, to Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so the, you know, the reality is um, America, going back to our roots and the fact that our first president went into Turo Synagogue and said, it is our desire, the desire of our new country, that every person of Jewish heritage is able to sit under their own vine and fig tree. That's straight out of the the, uh, the scriptures from Joel. That our country, America, uh, through Harry Truman, we were the first people. He was the first president, the first world leader when Israel declared statehood on May 14, 1948. Harry Truman is the first one that called. Now we have a president who, for the first time in in the 70 years existence of Israel has stood up and said Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel and we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Now that's really spiritually significant and therefore those who oppose it, those who twist the truth, those who condemn Israel are absolutely moving and walking and thinking in a spirit of of uh, absolute denial of what the Bible says. And, um, you know, all Christians need to really, really stand up and, you know, listen and speak up for Israel and speak up for the Jewish people because they are our elder brothers. Um, uh, Jesus was a Jew. Um, Jesus taught from, uh, you know, from, from, from Torah. He, he, was the, he was the original um, who who um, brought forth something that was a fulfillment, and that was to to bring God's love and mercy even to the pagans, the Gentiles. So you know, if you deny that, as the media is doing and attacking those who support Israel, you see that there's something fundamentally wrong with these folks. They just 
don't spiritually get it. They're not walking in the light. They are walking in darkness. Man, there's, there's so much to discuss in this book. And like I said, I got notes upon notes because I was thinking to um, a famous painting. Christ has, is holding a golden lantern. He's knocking at a door. Uh, it's a painting in England. I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I, forget what, uh, I forget what the name of it is. But we were having a conversation on the show recently about the Statue of Liberty. And everyone's saying, well, because the Statue of Liberty says... And they start to recite the poem, but they leave off the final verse, which always brought me back to the mind of that particular painting of Christ knocking on the door. And it says, mm-hmm. that final line says, and I lift my lantern to your golden door. So, you know, by basically mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, you've got to open the door for acceptance, you know, to the acceptance of Christ. But then again, he also realized that there are barriers. So, you know, mm-hmm. what we do with those barriers, how we protect them or use them for the benefit of Christ. That's the importance of it. And as I was reading the book, all these things were going through my mind. And you talk about Mm. the importance of the mountain. And this is something I didn't, I was not aware of is that the mountain that Christ climbed when he was tempted by Satan was the very same mountain of the transfiguration. For some reason, I always thought there were two separate mountains and this is pivotal to the story too. Yeah. Uh, Well, there. Yeah, go ahead, Ray. Yeah, you know, something that, you know, I have walked with the Lord, known the Lord a long time, and and I've always loved the story in Genesis of the Garden of Eden. And I don't know why, but I always imagined it kind of some big, beautiful plain, you know, out on the horizon. And then the Lord showed me, uh, actually, that in the scriptures through the prophet Ezekiel, the Garden of Eden was a garden planted on the top of a mountain. I believe it was the tallest mountain on the earth. Then Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden because of what happened and the sin. So they kind of have to go down. They literally, physically and metaphorically, allegorically go down. And then they're out into the howling wilderness. And the story of the gospel from that, the first couple of paragraphs of Genesis to Revelation, which ends in a garden, is that the Lord left the Garden of Eden because he missed Adam and Eve. He went down the mountain through his incarnation. He walked out into the cursed Uh, thorns and thistles of the wilderness he grabbed adam with one hand and even the other and ascended and brought us back to the mountaintop and there was the cherubim with the swords flashing we couldn't go in so jesus said you wait here he went through the swords came upon him he shed his blood and then because he's the messiah he resurrected on the threshold of that door and then took Adam and Eve and said, now, walk back into the garden, back into paradise, back into fellowship with me. So with that, I realized all of the major events that happen in the Bible, whether it's God giving the Ten Commandments, it was on a mountain, Mount Sinai. Uh, Elijah, bringing fire from heaven, was on a mountain to bring repentance, bring people back to the Lord. Jesus' most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a mountain. Jesus ascended from a mountain, the Mount of Olives. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. The temple is called the Temple Mountain. So all of these stories of illusions about mountains are the story of redemption, the story of love, the story of... So that's kind of what we, you know, put together. And mountains play a key role in that. I think people that love, you know, mountains and getting out, and uh, they're going to love, absolutely love this story. I mean, Bodhi and Brock are brilliant, as well as anointed. It's awesome. All of you are. I I sit in awe. I bow down to you. <laughs> but, 
um, it, there's so much that you address in the book, and you also address the Palestinian situation, and you look at straight on. And you tell the truth about what is truly going on. You know, before they decided to, when they had Israel, before they even had this huge uh, fight, there never was a state of Palestine. You'd be saying, well, Africa is a country. Africa is not a country. North America is not a country. Palestine was not a country. It was simply a region. There were no Palestinian people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and even, and, even and, Jews were called yeah. Palestine, Palestinians, you know, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really interesting, Annie, because um, if you look at the history, and I'm talking recent history, uh, the area of uh, Israel, which was called Palestine at the time, was under the, um, under the control of the Ottoman Turk Empire, Ottoman Turkish Empire. And then in World War One, um, you know, the, the Brits uh, beat uh, the Ottoman Turks, which was Germany, and they took over the, the governor, governance of that area. But in, in 1895, um, about then, Mark Twain was, went to visit the Holy Land, as uh, he called it. And he rode a horse from Jerusalem down to the seacoast to, to catch a ship. And he said, the place was so horribly desolate that you knew the curse of God was upon it. And it was, there was no life in it. And you knew that if there was a fly on your horse, come with you from Jerusalem. And so, you know, the, the, the Jews began to go into the land, buy land from absentee landowners, and plant millions and millions of trees. And it's very interesting to me that these firebomb balloons that are being sent over from, uh, from Gaza now are landing in these trees and in these orchards, the very orchards, the very trees, the very fields that are feeding the uh, the people in in Gaza, in the area of Gaza, and so there is a there's a concerted effort to destroy that which was built and blessed and caused Israel to become strong. And the reason there were people uh, uh, Arab people who came in then to the to the territory known as Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, was because they there were jobs. They came over. They worked in the fields. It was, you know, there were there was medical uh, facilities. There were doctors who could help them, and so all of that in the, you know, in the twenties and into the thirties um, was was something that was the the Jews that came in with their education, with their desire to see the land bloom again. They blessed everybody in the entire area, and. Um, and boy, the the, uh, the the Muslims just wanted to take it over, and it, what they can't take over, they will destroy, or they they think they will destroy, but they're not going to. It's not going to happen. You know, I, I could do a whole entire show with just the two of you here, of course, with my co-host, of course, <laughs> not even you, Al Curtis. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to delve into because I was I'm watching uh, something. Uh, Something that was up on CRTV, and as I was you know, going through different things, I, after having finished your book, and I, the first thing that came through my mind when I saw the scene was the false prophet. And you talk about Gog and Magog and about you know, the final battles and how 
as you're visiting the different sites within uh, Israel with our main character, Jack, which I'm assuming, Ray, these are all your experiences that you've uh, woven into the story from what you're saying so far. And I'd love to talk with you extensively with that one, but we're running out of time. But uh, as I see certain things unfold around us, I'm seeing the same thing you are. You know, the false prophets out there, because it was an Antifa rally. And the Antifa people are exactly the opposite of what they claim to be. They are fascists, but they give right. you a false message. The same mm-hmm. way the media yeah. is doing this. The same way a lot of our politicians are doing this. Oh, I'm a Democrat. I'm not yeah. a socialist. No, your policies are all socialist. You know, be honest about who you are. And we're falling for the false prophets. And your book points yeah. this out. Yeah, yeah. It is It is a really, really interesting moment in history that we're living in right now. And, uh, you know, I, I would say if somebody wants to see the, you know, the condensed version of what Jesus said about the, uh, about, uh, the end times, I would say read uh, Matthew 24. If you just want a real quick look at what's going on in our world right now, and Jesus called it birth pangs. Now, I don't know that a lot of people know this, but Orthodox rabbis are now saying what we're seeing is the birth pangs before the coming of Messiah. And um, so a very, very interesting um, kind of a crossover thing that's happening here where people uh, where people are looking at the events of the world and knowing that something's up, something is really, really happening. And um, of course, we, you know, we see it from the from a biblical perspective, and there is no denying it, no denying it, that uh, that we're living in a really significant moment in history right now. Well, the name of the book is On the Mountain of the Lord. And on the show description, I have a link directly to uh, Amazon for the book. So people, as they're listening to the show, uh, can uh, click on it and get your book. They can download it for a Kindle or they can buy the book itself. But uh, I'm going to give uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, your gal a little email, drop an, uh, my mailing address, address to her so you can sign the book, both of you, and, and get it over mm. to me. I appreciate that. And we've got to do a follow-up show. I'm sorry, there's just so much sure. to talk about and so many yeah. things that are going Boy, on today. That, <laughs> I know. I, yeah. I'm telling you, we can do a whole two yeah. hours. So I'm going to get a hold of her and yeah. see if we can reschedule the two of you on so Great. we can go more into depth about what is going on. Because what is happening in Israel right now is very, very important. Mm. It's a pivotal yeah. point. It is the cornerstone of everything that's happening across yes. the world. Yes, so it is. I want to thank both of you for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you for Annie having us. Curtis. Yes, yes, we so Thank appreciate it. So yeah. Take care, Love Jordan. You guys. And I, Looking forward to seeing y'all again. I'm, t- I'm, I'm telling everyone, it is a fast-paced thriller. It, it's not a preachy book. It is something that you can sit down, read, and understand, and then beg for more. Thank you, Bodie, and thank you, Ray. Good luck. And let me know Thank when the next one's coming out. Great guess. All right. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, check it out on the Mountain of the Lord. And, oh, my God, what's so much fun we had with that one. Let's bring out our next victim, <laughs> or his victim. I don't know which is which. So let's bring forward a fellow radio host and author, Michael Hart. Good afternoon, uh, Michael. How are you today? I'm doing just great, guys. How are you? All right. Oh, man. Yeah, these are two guests you should have on your show. I'm telling you, Michael, absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'll send you the information on them. 
because uh, I think yeah, you'll enjoy do, having because, it. You know, we're, we're always looking for fascinating guests ourselves, and as you point out you know, in your previous segment, there's a lot going on in the world around us today, and you know, we prefer to break down the news of the day, certainly from a biblical worldview, so I'd love to learn more about them. See, now I have no ego. I'm willing to share. <laughs> Not like some people out there. <laughs> anyway, uh, you've got a book out, which I had a lot of fun reading, and I have to apologize because your agent sent me the book, and I was switching my office around. I tossed it aside and said, I'm going to get to it. And one thing led to another, and all of a sudden I found it buried under a pile of papers, and I am so sorry. I apologize profusely. Because oh, absolutely not. Well, you know, I, Eddie, I know how it is. You know, being in the media myself, I probably get anywhere from 25 to 50 new books a week and probably 150 pitches a day. So no apology necessary. Well, I have to tell you, you know, as Judge Dean found out, that when someone sends me a book, I actually sit down and read it, which flabbergasted her. Uh, and I sat down and I read your book, and I've got dozens and dozens, more than enough uh, to go over the book, uh, bookmarked. And I'll have you know, because I did read the book, today's dedication went out to the men that were killed in Exercise Tiger, which you included in the book. Because as soon as I read it, it goes, that rang a bell, and why hasn't anyone recognized these men? And you did a, a wonderful thing in recognizing them in your book. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. As a matter of fact, I, I saw that you had put some of that out on social media, and I appreciate you, you bringing that up, because there's a lot of things just about the history of the country and, of course, the history of our United States military that a lot of folks are just not aware of when it comes to sacrifices. And, you know, many of these soldiers, you know, they, they die in the most unglamorous and unremembered, uh, you know, aspects of war, these training missions, and they're every bit as heroic as anybody else, and that is something we never need to forget. You know, it's funny because when I started doing the dedications, I, I picked out, I mostly get people that are recent, but I also reach back into the past where I've done them from colonial times up through uh, all the wars. And I try to touch on each and every war. And, you know, it, it is important we remember where we came from in order to know where we should be going. And your book points Absolutely. Out. Well, I, I couldn't possibly agree more. And that actually happens to be the whole pretense of my program. You know, I am a historian. Now, we, you know, we talk about the news of the day and do a lot of fascinating interviews like you guys do as well. But I had an op-ed piece that was released just two or three days ago on the dust-up between Sarah Sanders and Jim Acosta and the White House, of course. And the piece was basically going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, the friction that has existed between the American news media and the White House. And what's going on with Donald Trump and the fake news? Well, there's nothing new about fake news. And so if you don't understand the historical context of what's going on in the, in the past, you cannot appreciate what's happening in the trending news cycle today. Well, I, I said man learned to speak. The moment he learned how to speak and communicate, there was fake news because there was gossip. <laughs> so oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you know where else would we get the terminology of, you know, bearing false witness? That's exactly right. Exactly. And um, I want to start off with some of the stuff you have in the book. And you mentioned odd laws and states. And um, this was recently repealed, I think maybe about a decade or so ago, from New York State. We used to have a, a, a road on Long Island called Cowpath. And right. the law was in Cowpath that you had to walk in front of your vehicle holding lanterns. And the reason being is it used to be farmland, so the cows would use this path, hence cow path. And so you don't hit the cow and kill the cow. You had someone walk in front of the car. 
and believe it or not, as of 1980, I know that it was still on the books. Uh, there was also out in the Hamptons, there was one law that said you couldn't walk down the street eating an ice cream cone. <laughs> you got a resort town, and you can't walk down the sidewalk eating an ice cream cone. So I was amused to see all the odd uh, laws that were still on the books. I just got to want to ask you, what was your favorite one? As far as the, the laws themselves, uh, you know, I believe it's in the state of Arkansas where it's, it's technically illegal in the state of Arkansas to mispronounce Arkansas while you're inside the state. So, you know, of course, whenever I, you know, I read that, I, I mean, sort of referring to Arkansas's Arkansas on my program just to kind of punch at them a little bit. But there's a lot of goofy stuff out there. You're absolutely correct. And there's a lot of also interesting things, such as everyone honors Rosa Parks. As a matter of fact, they were, uh, she, what was it, a coin or something like that she got put on uh, as, you know, fighting the segregation laws by sitting on the bus. But she wasn't the first one. As a matter of fact, the NAACP was kind of embarrassed about who the actual first person was that did this, first woman that did this. Yeah, and, and, you know, Rosa Parks was pretty much the face of the civil rights movement. And being, you know, we're located in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, my studio is only four or five miles from the cemetery with where three of the four bombing victims from the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing are buried. And we're very sensitive to these issues in, in the Deep South in particular. You know, Claudette Colvin, who actually was the very first woman to refuse to give up a bus seat, uh, was in Birmingham not even three or four months ago with Al Gore. And, you know, Claudette was only 15 years of age at the time. She was uh, considered to be very uh, mouthy. Uh, you know, she was, um, she was uh, a little bit, you know, her, her background was questionable. There's been some debate over whether or not she was actually pregnant out of wedlock at the time. But she's the very first one that actually refused to go up her bus seat in Montgomery, Alabama. And, you know, this, of course, was the inspiration for the Montgomery bus boycotts during the civil rights era. The city leaders, in terms of the black community in Montgomery, were not happy as having Claudette being their representative. She, you know, she didn't articulate herself very well. Some think she might have even been in an extramarital affair with a, a married white guy. And so they began a search for somebody else, and that person actually became Rosa Parks, who was young. She was a seamstress. Rosa was attractive, and she also was politically active in the state. You know, she even operated as a, um, or worked as a secretary for the NAACP in Montgomery, Alabama at the time. So she became the, the, the face of the civil rights movement. And throughout American history, you know, that is not necessarily terribly unique, and, you know, where people have wanted to put on a different face or an argument. But I would like to point out that doesn't diminish the reason that Rosa did it or Claudette did it. It makes it every bit as more important. But I've always felt like, you know, writing the record on history on these things, which is why there's actually a chapter in the book on unknown black history, because the black population in the United States has made significant contributions to the fabric of this country, considering, you know, the relatively austere percentage of Americans that are African-American. So in the case of Rosa Parks, you know, did she used to give up her bus seat? Yes. But there's even a picture of her sitting on a bus with a reporter sitting behind her. That whole thing was staged. And when people challenge me on this, you know, I'll say, well, first off, it's in the history books. At least some of them decide to be accurate. But it's also on the front page of the day after she, Claudette was arrested, on the front page of the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune. And so it's funny that this history is hiding right there in plain sight. But yet Rosa Parks continues to this day to receive all these accolades, and Claudette Colvin is lost to history. Well, you know, yeah, you're right, Michael. 
right. Um, Rosa Parks, she was groomed for this this role that she, you know, is known for throughout history. And a lot of people just don't know that. But like you say, that doesn't make it any less, you know, insignificant. What she did was, was brave considering, you know, where she was. But she was groomed for that. Yeah, she was. But, and I also want to point out, this, that particular entry is not anti-Rosa Parks nearly as much as it's pro-Claudette Colvin. Because, you know, Claudette was, you know, think about where you're at here. You're in Montgomery, Alabama. It's the 1960s. You're 15 years of age, and you stand defiant in the face of the, of the, the brutal, you know, police of oppression that occurred in the Deep South at that time. I'm telling you what, that, that took some moxie. And for history to forget to, to acknowledge that, I personally think it's not only a slight to her, but it's a slight to the intellect of any patriot American. True. Well, yeah, that's an unfortunate thing because a lot of people refuse to recognize it was the Republican Party that was the party of abolition. It was the Whig Party, the party of abolition, not the Democratic Party. From the birth of this nation through today, there has been a Democratic Party, but only the Republicans are the ones. And a lot of the voting uh, uh, that was done here by blacks was Republican unless they were intimidated, which gave the rise to the red shirts out of my state of South Carolina. There was the... Um, what was his name? Uh, he was a Confederate general, went on to become a, a South Carolina senator, and he was the one that created the red shirts to intimidate. And his rule was that every white man must you know, uh, own, meaning intimidate, at least three black men to prevent them from voting Republican, to force them to vote Democrat. That was the forerunner to the KKK. And yet people will not recognize that. Instead, they say the Democratic Party is the party of the civil rights, which is the exact opposite. Well, you know what else I find interesting, and, and, you know, from a historical perspective, is, you know, Jefferson Davis was a very reluctant president of the Confederacy. He did not want to take the office. As a matter of fact, he found out that he was, he was voted in while he was picking flowers in his rose garden. But after, you know, after the war was, was underway and, and you know, the country's getting back together, the man that was voted to take over the Senate seat, because you know, Jefferson Davis was a senator, but his Senate seat from Mississippi was a guy by the name What's of up? Hiram Revels. Hiram Revels was, was a black man. He was the first black senator in America elected in part by the support of the newly founded Republican Party. See, I find that fascinating as well. And the fact that so many people don't realize, I mean, think of the irony of that. Here's the vacated seat of the president of the Confederacy in the United States Senate in a reconstructed America is an African-American guy. I mean, I'm telling you, the humor cannot be lost on people. Well, what about the first African-American uh, union captain, official union captain, Robert Smalls, again out of the state of South Carolina, a former slave. And he over uh, he overran the boat that he and fellow slaves were on. He captained it for the union. He he stayed on as its captain and came on and become an elected official here in South Carolina. He was rumored to have numerous different families around the state, different wives. Uh, but he's a monumental figure in history. And I had mentioned some of the history out of South Carolina where blacks were prominent. And I said the name Harriet Tubman. And if I would think every American would know her name, but the person looked at me like, who? And I says, you don't know the history of the state and you grew up here? I'm a northerner. I may have gotten to the south, but I got here as fast as I could. But I, right, I know right. the history. 
it, it, it's amazing that during Reconstruction, it was the time where there were the most number of blacks serving in the Senate as well as in the House. We haven't seen the Senate, you know, populated with that many blacks since Reconstruction. Senate. What do we have? Tim That's Scott. right. Again, from South Carolina. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And so much of the history has, in, in fact, been, you know, whitewashed. There was another very heroic African-American figure from the colonial days, and she was actually a slave by the name of Mum Bet. And she, uh, you know, eventually learned to write, and she, was, um, uh, she worked in, 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 a, um, in a plantation house, and her, her master, as it were, taught her how to read and write, taught her about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. And Mum Bet actually went and took... Um, her, her freedom case to court and won her freedom in the United States Court of Law long before we ever had an Emancipation Proclamation. And the way she was able to do that, and a lot of people didn't realize this, is that during this particular period in American history, the United States courts were prone to apply the law regardless of the color of some people's skin. And, you know, there's often been this idea that, you know, uh, blacks were forbidden to be taught how to, how to read during the, um, the early found in this country. That was not a federal law. That was just a southern practice. And the reason that was is because a lot of southern slaveholders knew that if blacks learned how to read, they would learn that the Constitution was in many, many, many cases being interpreted in their favor because even when the Founding Fathers founded this country, they, they weren't quite sure how to do away with slavery, but they knew it needed to be done away with. And they were pretty vocal about the fact that this was, this was not an institution that was going to be able to long survive. And it's cases like Mum Bet, who also was known as Elizabeth Freeman, that paved the way for that. There's so many uh, interesting facts, and you point out a lot of stuff in there. Uh, matter of fact, our friend Vorp had pointed out uh, John Wayne, and he has a quote here where John Wayne once said, Blacks have lived as well here as in any other country. They have had a better life here and their fathers and mothers. They have had a better life here than any other place. I wish they would all get to thinking that they are Americans as they should, as they have been born here and could be better off any other place. John Wayne. Matter of fact, John Wayne, uh, someone wanted him to run as vice president on the Republican ticket. That was a little known fact. Yeah, as a matter of fact, and, and that kind of stunned me as well because, you know, George Wallace was running for president in 1972, of course, the former governor of my home state of Alabama. And George Wallace, running as on the, uh, the segregation party, wanted to have J. Edgar Hoover as his vice presidential running mate. Well, Hoover turned him down for obvious reasons, and so his next choice was John Wayne. John Wayne, in a letter to George Wallace, informed Wallace that he was a, quote, Nixon man, but he did make campaign contributions to Wallace's 1972 campaign, of course, until Wallace was shot in Laurel, Maryland. But on one of the note lines, on one of the checks, John Wayne wrote, sock him to a George. And that kind of, and it goes, goes back to what you just referenced as well, Annie, that kind of maybe implies that John Wayne had some of his own prejudices or bigotries, although it was not necessarily overt. And you do have to kind of temper it with the mindset of the time. But it is true that, uh, that George Wallace did want John Wayne. And you've got to think about it for a second. If Wallace wants you, as, you know, running on the segregation party, maybe he knew something about Wayne that the rest of America didn't know. But the reality of it is he did want John Wayne to be his vice presidential running mate. Now, there, this book is absolutely fascinating. Unknown America, myths and little-known oddities, but the, great nation on, the greatest nation on the earth. 
And it is. It's got a lot of great stuff in there. And um, this should go into every high school, honestly, because history is not being taught correctly. And there's a great number of things here that I was aware of, uh, things that I didn't know. Um, as a matter of fact, you talk about gender bias with Ladies' Night. And when they started to turn around in the uh, late 80s, 90s, and said, oh, it's not fair. You know, it's a gender bias that you should have a certain night, you know, discount night for ladies and not for men. And I kind of like cracked up, but it became the forerunner to the LBG community's uh, accusations of gender bias, which then brings me over to the first gay president, which I knew uh, it was it was kind of like an open secret about the first real true gay president. Yeah, it was, and it's funny because I was actually doing a uh, nationally syndicated program just last week, and the, I think I caught the host, in this case, a little bit off guard, getting into some, um, some heavy conversations about that, because, you know, it was at that point, you know, today we talk about the LGB community, and of course we can have the debates about whether or not there's prejudices there or not, and of course there are. But, you know, the, the reality of it is, is that in that period of time, we're talking about James Buchanan, in that period of time, uh, you know, they were, they were still, you know, they were executing homosexuals, you know, in, in parts of America. It wasn't the law, but it was still occurring. But, yeah, there's been a lot of speculation about uh, James Buchanan, and a lot of it is admittedly circumstantial, but it's heavily circumstantial. You know, Buchanan was, you know, he remained a bachelor his entire life. He did have a live-in male companion even while he was in the White House. As a matter of fact, at that point in time, uh, Andrew Jackson referred to James Buchanan and a senator again from Alabama. I don't know why Alabama keeps popping up in so much of this stuff. I swear it wasn't intentional, but it is. His name is William R. King. Home, <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, it really is, although it's rainy and nasty down here now. But uh, William R. King is a senator from Alabama. He is supposedly in an affair with James Buchanan, who remains unmarried his entire life. We don't have a first lady. We have a first hostess, which happened to be his niece. And again, Andrew Jackson refers to the pair as Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. So we know that people at that time were aware that there was something going on. Now, on Buchanan's deathbed, he informs his family members that he wants all of his private letters burned, but some of them did survive. And there's just some very interesting correspondence. You know, for example, after being appointed minister to France by John Tyler, Senator King writes to Buchanan, I am selfish enough to hope you will not be able to procure an associate who will cause you to feel no regret at our separation. And in a letter that same year to a friend, Buchanan wrote of King's absence, I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any of them. To me, that is right between the eyes proof that James Buchanan (laughs) was, in fact, gay. And it might be hard for some people to swallow, but it's not like it's a new institution. You know, it, that too goes back to the Bible. <laughs> you know, um, I also knew about the, the uh, similarities between the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and uh, John F. Kennedy. But there were certain things that I, I was not aware of. I knew most of it, but not all of it. And, you know, both of the men had seven letters in the last names. That I knew. Both were shot in the head. Everyone knows that one. Both were seated next to their wives. 
uh, and that's true too. That, that was he was in Ford's uh, theater and Kennedy. Now this I, I didn't put this together when you said that Lincoln was shot at Ford's theater. Kennedy was shot in a Lincoln limo that was made by Ford. The, I, I, I that's absolutely out there, but I just never thought of it. You know, did you think well, of all these things yourself, or? or or is this something no, that no, you no, no. Up? Most of this book, it, it took about a year to write the book. It took about six years to research it. And some of these things are, you know, in, in one place, and then there's archives and there's phone calls. Some of it's just out of interviews that I've done over the years because I've been doing talk radio. I just celebrated my 10th anniversary on this one radio station, so I interview you know, everybody and anybody on an almost daily basis. But, you know, not only were both shot in the head, but they were both shot in the head on a Friday. You know, Lincoln was in box number seven at Ford's Theater. Kennedy was in car number seven of the Dallas Motorcade. You know, in addition to the numbers in their name, both the assassins had three names, John Wilkes Booth, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald, both with 15 letters. You know, both were elected to the U.S. We're talking about Kennedy and Lincoln, obviously. Both were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives for the first time in the year 1846 and 1946. And both were runners-up for their party's nomination for vice president in the years of 56. Both were succeeded by Southern Democrats named Johnson, each of whom had served as their respective vice presidents before they were assassinated. I mean, and, it, and there's My- even more than that. Yeah, don't don't forget the secretaries. Yeah, Lincoln's the secretary's, secretary's name as well. Name was Kennedy. That's exactly and Kennedy's right. Kennedy's secretary was Lincoln. Mm-hmm. That's exa- and then you know the, the whole thing about you know uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shoots from a warehouse and gets caught in a theater. You know John Wilkes Booth shoots from a theater and, and gets caught in a warehouse. In a and warehouse. so, oh yeah. You know it's it, it really sometimes coincidences. And they had the same number of letters in their names. The that's exactly right. And, and, you know, and, uh, there's coincidences, and then there's coincidences. Well, now I'll throw in one more. John Wilkes Booth was captured, was captured and killed before he even went to trial. Same thing with okay. Lee Harvey Oswald. He was captured and killed before going to trial. Yeah, and I tell you, <laughs> yeah. some, historians, some historians will make the argument that both of those killings were accidental. And when I say accidental as it relates to Lee Harvey Oswald, I mean the intent was not for those taking them into captivity to have killed them at that time. They were killed under suspicious circumstances. In the case of Wilkes Booth, supposedly, you know, there was a ceasefire order given at that particular time. So some historians have even brought that into, into the discussion, that they were killed under very mysterious circumstances. Oh, man. Now, some of the things you have in here is just too funny uh, because people are constantly getting themselves in trouble for their tweets. You know, I, I don't put anything out there on the social network unless I want it to be seen by everyone. So people that put up some of the stuff that's just outrageous. But what I wasn't aware, that uh, these are all being archived in the Library of, of Congress. Our tweets are being logged in the Library of Congress. Wow. This is something That's your tax that, dollars yeah. at work. Well, this is something that they, they have actually slowed down in the last few years because they have not been able to keep up with all of the information. And the idea behind the original accumulation of all the tweets was that the tweets were supposed to be almost a uh, social media uh, you know, a time capsule, if you will. So there was some debate in the last several months about whether or not to terminate that program, which they will do in the next year or so. But up to this point in time, anything that goes out on Twitter, 
And this isn't an NSA thing. You know, some people have questioned me about that, you know, governmental spying or whatnot. You know, you're not spying on anybody. You're putting out there voluntarily. But, yeah, for the, the last several years, everything you put out on Twitter, and it kind of implies the same thing uh, with, to do with Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But the United States government does gather and catalog this information. You know, what, what surprised me is that, you know, we're taught about Elliot Ness, and there was a TV series, and there were movies and everything else, and you always thought he was really this magnificent guy. But when I read about the truth with him and Al Capone, I'm saying, oh, my God. And, of course, those of us that were in law enforcement, there's always a glory hound, always out there. It's like, all right, you know, walk away. My, my command had a couple of them. So you just kind of, like, ignore them. But I was completely unaware that he was this slime ball. I'm sorry, that's Twitter. Yeah, he, he, he really my did. He, your slime ball. Yeah, he, I mean, he wrote his own press releases. You know, the guy, you know, apparently, you know, he had some kind of delusions of grandeur. Of course, you know, Al Capone was taken down by agents of the Eternal Revenue Service. But you read these things, and there's even an, uh, an inclusion on there. Um, uh, why am I having a senior moment all of a sudden? You know, uh, about the, the Wild West revision, going back to Wyatt Earp and all that. If you ever saw the movie of Kurt Russell, that entire movie is just completely made up, or at least good significant points of it. But in the case of, of Elliot Ness, you know, he was a wannabe. He was, uh, you know, he was not held in a high esteem with many people at the crime-fighting agency at that point in time. He did have his eyes at one point on both the mayor's office as well as to hopefully to be the president of the United States. But he would put out massive amounts of information. He would stage pictures, you know, of himself, and they would break it up uh, bootlegging operations. And he tried his best to take uh, all the credit for bringing down Al Capone when, in fact, it was the, uh, you know, the, the Treasury agents, the G-men, as they were sometimes referred to. So that's just another revisionist history where you've glorified somebody's actions based on things that didn't even occur. And then we see something similar even in the story of Betsy Ross, for example. So much of her mystique is fabricated. But in the case of Betsy Ross, it was a relative. In the case of Elliot Ness, it's Elliot Ness. Mm. There's so much interesting stuff in there because I also found what I found really fascinating is the the book The Titan and the Titanic. I was not right. aware of the book The Titan, and I, I was trying to see if I could find it on the internet to see if I can get a copy. But amazing. Yeah, it really is. The, the, the book was The Wreck of the Titan or Futility. And it's actually got two different names. And what's really eerie about it is that 14 years before the sinking of the Titanic, a guy by the name of Morgan Robertson actually wrote the book, The Wreck of the Titan or Futility. And there was really some eerie similarities between the two. And some conspiracy-minded folks have even, uh, well, even thought that Robertson was revealing some kind of devious plan by European and, and American bankers to help you know, advance the Federal Reserve Bank. Banking, you know, the Federal Reserve Act at that point in time. But for example, you know, both the Titan and the Titanic were described as the largest craft afloat and the greatest works of men. Also, the Titan was 800 feet long. The Titanic was 882 feet long. Both ships being described as unsinkable. 
Both had uh, a triple screw propeller, which would have been unique in that period of time. Both, bo- both ships in the book, the uh, Wreck of the Titan, were short on lifeboats. The Titan carried 24, which was as few as the law allowed. The number could carry less than uh, half of her passenger, passenger capacity. The Titanic had only 16 lifeboats. Both ships, uh, ships sink after striking icebergs. The point is, is that the book, The Wreck of the Titan, foretells the sinking of the Titanic 14 years later with, again, eerie coincidences. As a matter of fact, the Titan sank, moving at 22 knots and struck an iceberg on the starboard side at night, 400 nautical miles from Newfoundland. Well, guess where the Titanic sank? Almost dead, even in the exact same area, at the exact same speed, and sunk at the exact same pace as what was written in this book 14 years earlier. That is just too much of a coincidence. And as uh, Gibbs says on NCIS, I don't believe in coincidences. Yeah, well, like I said, some oh, people out there, you know, have written this off as, a, as a, you know, a possible justification. You know, we can also talk about things like the sinking of the Lusitania, you know, where people know that that they, or think they know that boat was sunk intentionally. It wasn't supposed to be carrying war munitions as it was a passenger liner. But some people think that, you know, the Wilson administration sent it into harm's way so it would get sunk for justification for entering into war. And so there are people out there that believe that the book, The uh, Futility or The Wreck of the Titan, was in fact a blueprint that somehow mysteriously got released and published, and in fact that occurred 14 years later. That doesn't explain the iceberg being where it was or the speed the ship was going or the location of the ship when it sank, but again, it's just one of those things that's unexplained in literature. Well, you know, I got to say that I just did another search on the wreck of the Titan, uh, but I put behind it, you know, utility because I wasn't aware of the second uh, title. And Project Gutenberg, which people go on for free, they can actually download the book. They can get it in EPUB or Kindle version. Uh, so yeah, they, they can. And as a matter of fact, uh, I'll tell you something. You want another coincidence? Project Gutenberg was established for the purposes of creating the very first e-books. And I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but the person that actually founded the technology and invented the ebook, um, the, the ebook platform, his name was Michael Hart. So there's another coincidence for you. <laughs> well, I want to let you know that you know in the description, show description, I have a link to your book to Amazon, so people can go onto Amazon and uh, and buy the book for you. But you also have a radio show, the Michael Hart Show. Tell us about that. Well, we come on every single Monday through Friday out of Birmingham, Alabama. We're on from 7 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock. We are primarily political talk. You know, we interview. The past couple of weeks, two days ago, we had Dinesh D'Souza on. Uh, you know, Dinesh comes on with us pretty frequently. He was on the talk about, you know, recently being exonerated or, or pardoned by by Trump from the, you know, his accusations that was leveled against him by the Obama administration. Diamond and Silk have been on with us in recent weeks. Pamela Geller, uh, a few months back, you know, we visited with, uh, with Mike Pence. But, you know, in recent years, I've had Trace Atkins on and Richard Petty. You know, we're kind of all over the place. And, of course, we cover, uh, you know, local politics as well. But, you know, we, we're a Christian-based program. It is news talk for the most part, talking about politics and culture and things of that nature. But every day, you know, we come up with some pretty interesting guests as well. We're on for three hours. You know, the website out there is Michael Hart. It's H-A-R-T, Michael Hart Show. It, it is a regular terrestrial signal, 
And then, of course, we do a lot of writing and things like that. We are a call-in program, so we take callers frequently. And so we're on Monday, Monday through Friday. And I'll tell you something else, too, Annie. For anybody, you know, we do have a website, which is theunknownamerica.com, and I appreciate you mentioning Amazon. But one thing we are real big on with our program is the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And if somebody wants to go to theunknownamerica.com, they can actually get the book there with no shipping, and we even give you a free copy of the Constitution because we want people to see it and read it and immerse themselves in it. So the book is everywhere, but on theunknownamerica.com, the Constitution comes free. We reduce the shipping because we just want to get the word out because what you said earlier about the book needing to be in our schools, we really do believe that. Because, you know, ignorance, it really and truly is the enemy of the state. And all the problems we have in this country, whether they be political or secular versus Christianity or black versus white, there's a lot of things that if people understood a lot more about our history, we wouldn't have quite the consternation and angst in this country that we do. Because everything going on around us has, in fact, occurred before. Yeah, I'm going to change the link in the showroom when I get uh, off that when people listen to the podcast, because I'm more of a podcast and you, while you're terrestrial, so the podcast people can just click on the Unknown America, go directly to the unknownamerica.com, go directly to your site. Because uh, I'm a proud uh, proponent of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the founding documents. You know, when I did my first Tea Party, I had mounted the Magna Carta. I had mounted, uh, uh, good Lord, uh, the... Um, Emancipation Proclamation, the Constitution, sure. the Declaration of Independence, I had them up there displayed. And then I then reworded the Constitution to match our, our rally at that time. And I had people and politicians coming up and signing their name to it. And then we presented it to our county council. Uh, so, yeah, it's very important. I've carried with me. And matter of fact, I've had to take it out of my purse recently because it's gotten so dog-eared. The same oh, Constitution my in my purse. Since 1976, the same one yeah. that I received in high school. I, I, but it got so dog-eared, I said, well, I've got to upgrade to a newer version. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because you know, you're probably aware of this Alexandria Cortez up in New York that's running for the House oh. of Representatives. And <laughs> Candace Owens has offered her $10,000 to debate and debate on the Constitution. And I don't know if Cortez will take her up on it or not, but a little while ago I tweeted out, I don't have as much money as Candace Owens, but I can throw in a C note and my copy of the, my dog-eared copy of the Constitution to get you to debate her <laughs> because I'm the same way. I've got mine with little post-it notes in it, and I make little notes in the margins. And just to be arrogant about it, I even correct some of their grammar every once in a while because that's just the way I am. <laughs> well, also Robert Shapiro made the same offer, but he offered to make a donation to her campaign, which he can't do. That's, that's illegal. And right, then he right. opted to where. Yeah, we'll, we'll charge tickets and we'll raise fifty thousand, and then we'll donate it, donate it to a charity. So she's turned them both down. Uh, matter of fact, she said um, he was Robert Shapiro was catcalling. <laughs> Wait a minute, yeah, well, yeah. to debate you on politics and it's catcalling, really? Mm-hmm. Well, you know the thing about it is, you know, not to be hyper political, but if you were to run as a democratic socialist, then run as a democratic socialist. You know, don't don't hide from it. You know, the the reality of it is, if your ideas are better. Then, then present your ideas, state your case, and let people make a determination there. Because the thing about it is, in this particular candidate's uh, situation, I'm not 100% certain she's convinced that she knows what she is. And so she's not really able to debate the, the issues on their merits. 
But it does go back to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And, and by the way, just in case your, your listeners did not know this, you know, the, the Constitution, sorry, the Declaration of Independence was received in London on this very day in 1776. So although we might have declared our independence in early July, the uh, British did not know it until this very day. So it's kind of our second Independence Day. I think that's pretty interesting. And being on my show, what a way to go. What a way to go. Oh, man. Um, talking about some of the other things that are going on, can you believe that we may actually have a Muslim woman elected to Congress as Michigan? Is that crazy or what? Oh, yeah. And, you know, you've also got a um, the, the Muslim guy running for uh, the governor's office up there as well. And that was one of the things that we talked to Pamela Geller about this past week because, you know, we have been watching, uh, you know, we've talked many times on my program with Dr. Zudi Jasser about Sharia law and things of that nature. And, you know, the, the fact that, you know, putting, putting theology aside for just a moment, the, the Muslim ideology, probably ideology of capitalism, for example, the whole ideology flies in the face of a constitutional republic. Those two ideologies don't blend, uh, blend together. You know, as far as the White House is concerned, a Catholic, a Baptist, a Methodist, whatever. But when you start to introduce, you know, Muslim ideologies into this particular governmental system where they're so used to a theocracy and promoting that, this is much, it's much, much worse than just the differences in religion or, or differences in, in, um, in philosophy. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned that people aren't grasping that. And, you know, the, the biggest Muslim community in America is Dearborn, Michigan. So if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to start in that state. Absolutely. <clears throat> and I have debated, we, we had a seminar in our town here, Love Thy Muslim Neighbor, at a Unitarian church. And they were not too happy with me when I showed up with Quran in hand with all the little post-it notes all over it, meaning I have actually read it. And when the email oh, started to. to recite the the Quran and saying, well, it says in here that the Christians and the Jews can be friends with the Muslims. And I says, yeah, but you forget the rest of it. It says before the prophet Muhammad, meaning before Muhammad was born, you could be because it was forgivable. But once Muhammad was born, you can't be. So please don't misquote. And then I started challenging him on everything he was saying until someone stood up and started telling me to shut the, you know what up. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and the funny thing is, is that about three or four years ago, I picked up a copy of the Koran as well. And, you know, on my desk, I have several books. You know, I have the, uh, the Federalist Papers. I have my Bible. I have the copy of the Koran. I have a book called The 5,000-Year Leap that I'm constantly referencing, you know, these things, depending on what I'm going to talk about any particular day. And I can't tell you how many people have called me out. Uh, you know, of that faith, on the air for how dare I read the Quran, And I'm like, well, first off, if you want me to understand, then I've got to understand. But I've read the thing as well, and parts of it read like stereo instructions, so I'm not even sure what they're talking about half the time, because, you know, as you're well aware, it's written these things called sarahs, or however that's pronounced. And, you know, just it's so unbelievably Old Testament and, you know, the, we Christians, you know, we left for the, the Old Testament behind with the exception of for historical purposes and reference. But the, they do, they, they absolutely do conflict so deeply with one another. But most of the people that seem to espouse what's in it don't know what's in it. 
No, it's, it's funny because on my show <clears throat> last week or the week before, I had a friend of mine, Usama Dakduk, who was Egyptian-born and Arabic is his native language. He was a Christian. He runs the straightway ministry. Uh, and he went, and since Arabic is his native language, took the time to interpret the Quran from the posed 100% Arabic into English. So anyone sitting there could actually read exactly what was written in English. And he interprets the words and says where they come from, whether or not this is from Greek or Latin, or if it's a completely made-up word. It's, it's an excellent way to understand the Quran. So maybe I'll put you in touch with him. I had him on the show with a Muslim who believed that she can re- reform Islam, the same way Zudi Jasser, we've had him on also. And we had the two of them debate. It got very hot, very contentious at times. So when they say that you can reform the religion, that's not true. Because she cited the reformation of the Christian church, the Catholic church. They reformed the church, but not the religion. The Bible remains the Bible. Yes, it's written in several different methods, but essentially it is the same no matter who interpreted the Bible. The words are the words, the gospel is the gospel, and we take it as a whole. And yet they insist that they can reform Islam. The moment you do that, you become an apostate. You're subject then to be a fatwa and have a death sentence put on you. You can't change the religion. You can change the mosque, but not the religion. And that's what people don't understand. Well, Andy, you know, and, and they have the, you, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, Andy, then they have a debate also about is there such thing as a moderate Muslim? Yeah, because if you're a moderate Muslim, then you're ignoring Muhammad and what the Quran and the surahs say. Now you become apostate, again, a fatwa and subject to death. So go ahead. Well, uh, you know, my... this, this goes back to, to people, you know, co-opting, you know, religion and, co- and co-opting theology. My, my brothers and sisters and I were, were raised in the Catholic Church, but I was confirmed at a time, you know, you know in pre-Vatican II. And although, you know, I call myself a Catholic light now, I don't get the Mass as often as I once did. You know, I, I, I float between churches, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, not, you know, not the just because I've got, you know, Methodists in my family and Presbyterian, so I get off to Mass, and I pretty much enjoy all the various services. But I do sneak off to Mass from time to time, but my, my sisters and my brother and I were all raised in the Catholic faith. One of my sisters, who is a highly educated psychologist from Johns Hopkins University, claims to be a pro-choice Catholic. And what? I'm like, What? <laughs> yeah, you know, that that's like, you know, I'm a real girly man. I mean, I don't understand how people can co-opt that kind of, of intellectual thought. Again, she's a psychologist. She was, you know, trained at uh, Johns Hopkins University. So, you know, by that, you know, she's highly educated but not terribly smart. But how in the world are you a pro-choice Catholic? And that, And you see a lot of this in play in a lot of different theologies in our world today where people take the good from here and the good from there, leave the bad out over there, and it's almost like they've created their own little quasi-theologies, and it just doesn't work that way. Well, you know, I myself was also raised Roman Catholic. What worse, Italian and German Roman Catholic. You can't get any more Catholic than that. Yeah, well, my family's German-Irish, so we're right behind you. I mean, I even taught uh, Sunday school, and I loved it because it was to like uh, five, six, and seven-year-olds. I had a blast. But when I saw the turn of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church abandoning certain parts of the faith and changing things, exactly what you're saying, um, I said, no, 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 no. And then I think the final final thing that made me walk away is we got a call 
for a burglary in a rectory of the Catholic Church. We show up at the burglary call, and what was being stolen were green cards being illegally printed out. The Catholic Church itself was committing a crime. And that is when I said, you know, the faith has lost me. I have not lost faith. And eventually I found my way to the Anglican Church, or as my sister, who's now a Baptist, and her, her, her Baptist minister husband say, uh, Roman Catholic light, because it's very, very similar. But the difference is we don't have a pope. It's not going from the top down. It is coming from us, the people, up to the clergy, and then the clergy becomes the shepherd. And it's a whole different way of looking at Christianity that you know I, I find so refreshing. And there are other faiths out there that are very similar along the lines. So the Catholic Church is starting to lose people because of something like that. I mean, well, supposedly this, this pope Nancy isn't Pelosi helping either. Pro-life. No, no, he's not. You know, they said at one point they were going to excommunicate Pelosi and uh, uh, John Kerry. Because here they are pro, uh, pro-choice, pro and yet they were still taking communion, which, again, is against the Catholic faith. And Absolutely. yet the Catholic faith broke their own faith. And I saw things like that going on left and right. And I just said, no, I can't endorse this. You know, I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. I believe in the words of Jesus. And these are not the words of Jesus. Well, you're spot on. You absolutely are. I mean, um, the chat room is absolutely going going um wax because uh vito esposito who also has a show mama mia no sharia uh said usama our friend usama death translated the quran word for word uh yes and that's exactly what i said Vito. he actually took it word for word and interpreted each and every word and explained what it was and then he compares and shows where it's (laughs) wacky where they try to compare uh biblical verses uh, to the Quran and how he gets it all wrong about Noah, about Mary, about everyone else. And he gets the times wrong, the places wrong. So, yeah, it's it's a good interpretation. Um, moving along, we got right now the Mueller trial. Oh, my God, I want to hear you on this one uh, because they tore apart uh, Rick Gates <laughs> yesterday in testimony. So do you think that his um, – uh, what do you call it? Now, I'm having a senior moment. The plea bargain that he got, the plea agreement, is that going to go out the window? Is this whole Mueller case going to completely implode? Well, you know, there, there's so much to it, and I think that most of it is an absolute, you know, witch hunt. And turning your attention, you know, to, to Manafort, for example, I mean, most of what, you know, did he do some wrong things? Yeah, he did. Is he a crook? Yeah, he probably is. But, you know, most of what occurred was in the pre-Trump era, so that shouldn't have any application here whatsoever. Robert Mueller is obviously, you know, on a witch hunt. You know, Rudy Giuliani has called for him to, you know, to pack his bags and, you know, bring it all right back here to to Alabama, you know, Jeff Sessions is one of ours, you know, he was our senator from this state, and we've had Jeff on the program many times as well, I I was talking, as a matter of fact, it was just last week, I was talking to uh, Laura Ingram, and Laura and I have been friends for years, and she comes on my program every once in a while, and I was asking her about Sessions, and she made the comment that, you know, the, the one mistake that Sessions, you know, has made so far is allowing this witch hunt to go on. That's the only real problem that she had with him at that point in time, because, you know, Mother has gotten us the Russian collusion thing. Now we've got the Manafort. We've got Gates, you know, being indicted. We've got all of this, and it's so much of it is just window dressing, and it's so distracting. It was so funny. It's for those of us 
that have a few miles on our odometers, Annie, and, and remember back in the time when, you know, the Congress didn't want to drag uh, the country through a lengthy impeachment proceeding as it relates to Bill Clinton, and we're seeing kind of the reasons why now, despite the fact that he was, you know, they were talking in, in respect to the indictment of Clinton, that, you know, or the conviction, rather, they, they just can't seem to get their head around the fact that it's tearing the country, you know, pretty much asunder, if you will. But I think that, you know, Mueller needs to pack the whole thing in. Now, is there some things that concern me about Manafort and the whole Gates thing? Absolutely. You know, but I, I don't know that they're applicable to this administration, although the left-leaning media is painting it as though it's the end of the Trump administration and yet another impeachable offense where it's not even related. You know, there's so many things that are so wrong with this whole Mueller investigation. And someone sent me something. I was looking for it on my desk, and, of course, I can't find it. Uh, But it was something that Rod Rosenstein's uh, wife is somehow also implicated because she represented a lot of characters here, such as Comey and Mueller and several others. Uh, She's an attorney, and yet she has an email address that goes back to the national health uh, within our government. And normally that happens where you're working for one branch of the government, and yet your email comes through a different area of the government. The CIA does that. So there's a questionable whether or not there's ties to the CIA through Rob Rosenstein's wife. And here he is in charge of Mueller with this investigation. And yet we know Comey was uh, mended by Mueller, and Mueller and Rosenstein are great buddies. There's a whole big circle around here, and it stinks to high heaven. But yeah, but isn't that the very definition of what Trump was referring to? You know, when he uses terminology such as the swamp, you know, it's like you know, there's this this bar up in D.C. Uh, I think it's called Bullfeathers or something like that. And you know, these guys are are you know, they're they're getting on TV, they're they're doing their um, uh, you know, their their dog and pony show for the media. At the end of the day, they're all hitting happy hour and patting each other, or you know, on the back. The way I used to liken it is, you know, you go and watch WWF, and these guys are beating each other up with folding metal chairs and tables, and then they're working out at the gym together the next day because it's all an act. It's just all an illusion, and that's a lot of what goes on in Washington D.C. I've got a lot of friends that live in D.C. I mean, within the political structure. You know, people that are secretaries for senators, and, and they work in the administrative offices of Congress and whatnot, and they tell me the same thing. You know, it's just all window dressing. It's all meant for, for public consumption because a lot of them are just in bed together. Uh, you've got, you know, Republicans. You know, you've got the John McCain's to a lesser degree. You've got the Lindsey Graham's. And there's just so much, you know, you talk about Russian collusion. I got news for you. Russian collusion is way down on my concern level. My concern is Democrat-Republican collusion in D.C. And you see a lot of strange bedfellows up there and a lot of people behind the scenes. And I honestly believe that the biggest threat to them is Donald Trump, not because he's this, you know, wonderful conservative or not because he's this brilliant financier, but because he's upended a boat. And I think the whole charade is going to come tumbling down in the next few years if we stay on this current trajectory with him. You know, they say, uh, well, actually, Shakespeare wrote in Romeo and Juliet, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. And I turned around and I said, think of it this way with what we've got in the swamp. A pile of crap by any other yeah. name would still, still smell just as bad. And this is what we got ourselves, a pile of crap, and it's time to clean it up. Well, 
you know, you look at how, how suspicious was it that Jason Chavez, I know he wants to spend time with his family, but all of a sudden he seems to be getting closer and closer and closer to the truth. All of a sudden he decides to take an exit. Now he's kind of reemerged on the, the talk scene, but he's not in a place where, you know, he's not in, in a, an official capacity any longer. You see all of a sudden, you know, although he seems to have kind of tightened down again in recent weeks, Trey Gaudi went kind of milk toast on us there for a while. Now it looks like, you know, he's taking his walking papers. Paul Ryan's looking for the exit door. Something's going on up there that I can't quite put my finger on, because although I really do believe that the right is making progress in terms of the, you know, the dismantling of the supposed blue wave, there's still something really amiss going on up there, because the key players, it pretty much the, the, the stalwart, long-term key players – they seem to be moving out. The same thing with Jeff Lake and so many other ones that probably would have won some, you know, a pretty good chance at reelection. These guys are heading for the hit, for the house. And I'm telling you, something's going to break up there in the next several months or next year or so where there's going to be a lot of people out there that are going to be disgustingly surprised at the way business as usual has been conducted in the Capitol for years. Well, you mentioned several names, especially since they come out of my state of South Carolina. Uh, as for Lindsey Graham, I am persona non grata in his office. I mean, that happened the day I actually stood nose to nose and toe to toe. And I'm only five foot three. Lindsey Graham's only five foot three. And just I went nose to nose with him. He was not happy with me. Um, as for Trey Gowdy, uh, I am getting it from inside information because I'm active in the Republican Party here, uh, statewide as well as you know uh, my local county. And word is is that he stepped out so that in the future he could have a, an appointment to a judgeship, possibly even in time up to the Supreme Court. So that's the that is what the word is with Trey Gaddy. That's why he walked away. Um, who was the other one you mentioned? Uh, oh, Jason uh, my own Congress. Uh, Jason, well, he's not South Carolina, uh, yeah, but he's. There was something on him because when he was doing the investigations, he was going at it like a pit bull. And then also the next day, everything stopped, and the word came back that someone had something on him, and it was either he walked away or he ended up with a lot of mud on his face. So that was the word on him. Uh, but my own congressman, Mark Stanford, who happens to be a friend of mine. Um, Everyone was going, oh, he's going to shoe in, shoe in. And I know Katie Arrington. Uh, she's such a sweet, she's a little fireball. But I saw that Sanford was doing certain things here within the state that were not true conservative values. Some of the things he was saying and doing, and he came up with this brain surgeon of an idea that anyone living in the flood zone, if you live along the coastal plain, uh, a, the federal program, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or whatever it was going to be, would offer to buy your property because you're in a coastal area that might flood. And I'm going, what the WTH? And I said, you cra-? And I sent him a text. He says, you crazy? I said, where is it in the Constitution that says you buy people's property because they bought it in a dangerous area? You buy property. It's a real estate investment. You take a gamble. You, unless you do your due diligence, don't buy the property there. If you're stupid enough to do it, well, then tough. That's my attitude. I mean, I bought my house. I checked to make sure it wasn't in a flood zone. Isn't that just a logical thing to do? But this is why he lost. And the other thing why he lost is heavy military Marine Corps here. They still are not happy with him going AWOL from the governor's mansions. So there is going to be a turnover, I think, this uh, November in the House and the Senate. It's going to be a huge red tide. 
Well, you know, I, I'm really, I'm really holding out hope on that because, you know, being down here in Alabama, you know, you're probably familiar that I'm in the land of Roy Moore. And, you know, I interviewed <laughs> Judge Moore on many occasions. We've also got the Love Gov down here that was recently run out of office because he's having an extramarital affair with one of his secretaries. All of a sudden, he goes under investigation from our state attorney general. Our state attorney general all of a sudden gets appointed to the Senate seat previously held by, by Jeff Sessions. So you got the governor, he's under investigation, he takes the guy that's his, his greatest uh, dementor, appoints him to a United States Senate seat. Donald Trump comes to Alabama to stump for this senator in a re-election bid because it was a special election. He gets thrown out of office, or rather gets defeated by Roy Moore, of all people, who gets allegations of groping a 14-year-old girl 30 years ago. And Alabama's sitting at a, a, a Democrat senator for the first time in decades here in the state of Alabama, all because we got our governor who can't keep his hands off his secretary. So believe me, I understand the corruption, and it is time for a lot of these guys. And on top of that, Bentley announced yesterday that he's going to seek a higher office in the state of Alabama again. And, you know, even in the county I live in, we hold the world record for county commissioners in Jefferson County, Alabama, that are currently doing federal prison time. So, I mean, it's, it's – you can't keep up with it. Oh, man. You know, normally we have a, a Tea Party Coalition convention here in South Carolina, and we had it last year, but we're not going to have it, it seems, this year, uh, because my friend Joe Dugan, who runs it, we're coming into the midterm election, so he wants to concentrate on that, on the elections. But we're seeing a lot of new faces, especially former military, coming up to run for office. I mean, even in my own county, there are 11 seats open on the school board. Out of that 11 seats, as of just a couple of days ago, we've got 13 people lined up to run for those. No, I'm sorry, it's seven seats. 13 people are lined up for those seven seats out of seven open out of 11. And that is phenomenal. I mean, the people are rising up. They're angry. Well, they, they definitely are. And I'm so glad to see that happen. You know, here in the state of Alabama, you know, I, I was not an official member of one of the Tea Party groups, but there was a rather large one down here that I was very supportive of. And our very first Tea Party event here in Birmingham drew right at 10,000 people. Now, of course, you know, that particular group fractioned off into uh, several other chapters, so these events are, are much smaller, but they're every bit as strong and vibrant in terms of the movement that's continuing to get out and educate people and let them know. And, you know, for all of the shortcomings that we see and all the, the cesspool postings you see on social media, it has awakened a lot of people. And I know that there's a lot of folks out there that found Barack Obama's policies very disheartening or even disgusting, if you want to go that far. But I really do believe that he did something for this nation in the fact that he woke people up to the process, good and bad, and it's forcing issues out into the open that might not have been there previously. Because I'm 57 years old, and I don't remember this much. For all of its, for all of its vitriol, I don't remember this much political discourse, whether it's wrong or not, and a lot of it is wrong, being so up and center, so forefront in the daily discussions of so many Americans. At the very least, people are awakening to the process. We're winning some people over to the right. You know, and as long as there are Cory Bookers of the world and Alexandria Ocasio and, and Maxine Waters out there, you know, running their pie holes and doing their things and Nancy Pelosi stumbling all over her words, 
I think the truth eventually will percolate to the top. And so I think I heard you say earlier before you brought me on today, we're living in historical times, and I know you meant that from a religious perspective, but we're definitely living through them in a political one as well. No, I mean it from both sides, you know, political as well as religious. You know, I, I remember the uh, the civil rights. Uh, I remember the busting then with that. I remember the Richard Nixon with the impeachment. I remember all of that, but I've never seen the hatred or the actions uh, that is coming from from those that are opposing, you know, Christian and Republican, conservative Republican ideals. And I've never seen us be under attack in such a bad way. And then again, you've got the rhinos like the Lindsey Grahams out there that flip-flop so fast you don't even know where they stand that give us a bad name. And so we've got a clean shop in ourselves, and then we have to help drain the swamp. So we've got to fight. We've got to fight within ourselves as well as with our opponents. And we've got to fight to reunite and unite this uh this nation. I want to thank you for joining us, Michael. I've had so much fun. I actually extended it a few minutes so people uh, can hear the rest of it because it was getting so interesting. I want to encourage people to go to your show, the MichaelHartShow.com. Go to TheUnknownAmerica.com. Get your book. Uh, look into the information you have there for the Constitution, the Declaration, because these are so important and these times are so very important. Well, I couldn't possibly agree more. I appreciate you having me. You've got my email. Drop me those those lists of uh, folks that you uh, find very interesting. And I'd like to get you on my program as well. And we always love talking to patriotic Americans every day of the week. And you obviously do a bang-up job. You definitely know your stuff. And I'm so delighted to be able to spend this time with you today. And it was a complete honor. Oh, thank you so much. That's a very nice compliment. I'm blushing right now. So when looking up, you can see me completely red at the moment. <laughs> thank you, sir. But it's absolutely true. Well, God bless and enjoy your weekend. Check out Michael Hart and his book, The Unknown America, Myths and Little Known Oddities About the Greatest Nation on Earth, uh, and uh, and his radio show, too, an excellent radio show. I had me laughing at some of the stuff he was pulling. So I'm going to leave everyone uh, with this. Uh, Take care, Michael. I thank you. Uh, and you are going to have a surgical procedure on Friday, so we'll see what can, we can do about that. Uh, but we'll be back here on Tuesday. We have author Seamus uh, Runa is going to be on with us. Our friend Brian Mahoney will be with us, as well as my buddy Michael Doherty. Uh, so it's going to be a fun and we've got a lot of other great things coming up. Uh, Congressman Ted Yoho is coming up in the future. Uh, New York candidate for Congress, uh, uh, Chele Farley, is going to be with us. Oh, man, we've got so much. Uh, Tom DeWeese. So we've got a lot of great people. So we will be oh, back yeah. here Tuesday, same bad time, same bad station. want to thank everyone up in the chat rooms and watching in on Facebook and YouTube. Until then, I say good night and God bless. And, Curtis, we'll be talking. Yes, we will. Have a good weekend.